You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello, and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. This is Sloan Simmons, and this is another or one of our series of COVID-19 related podcasts, uh, in particular as it relates to student issues. This podcast will be offered alongside podcasts that cover specific special education issues arising from COVID-19 as we look forward to the 2021 school year, as well as issues of student athletics and COVID-19. Today, I am lucky to be joined by two of our fantastic student attorneys. Amy Terry of Lozano Smith Sacramento office is this, one of our two student practice group leaders and has been uh, deeply involved with addressing the myriad of issues arising in the student context because of COVID-19, and in particular, Senate Bill 98, which will be part of our discussion today, uh, as well as Desiree Serrano, a senior counsel out of our Los Angeles office, another one of our um, long-tenured and experienced expert student attorneys, although Desiree also is a jack-of-all-trades covering practices like technology and innovation, municipal matters, labor and employment, as well as investigations. And so, Desiree, Amy, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, the issues we're going to cover in these these student-centered podcasts around COVID-19 are a little bit briefer than sometimes we have spent in the past. We're trying to make sure that uh, our listeners have the most up-to-date issue spotting information on hand and so really, you two, are, are, I'm hoping, can provide us a lay of the land under the, the instructional and other issues that are now in play with regard to students and education as a result of Senate Bill 98, as well as the most recent guidance issued by the California Department of Public Health and Governor Gavin Newsom. So why don't we start, Amy, with where we are under the law in terms of requirements for in-person instruction. Yeah, so as you know, you indicated, we're going to be kind of just going over generally um, what these terms are. Our client news brief on point goes into further detail, but generally speaking under SB 98, we know that in-person instruction is required. And as you know, part of that definition, what they mean by in-person instruction is instruction that's under the immediate and physical supervision and control of a certificated employee of the local educational agency or LEA um, while students are engaged in educational activities. So your basic run-of-the-mill in-person instruction as we would know it in prior years, students coming to school and being instructed by certificated staff. Okay, Amy, so my immediate kind of first question coming out of SB 98's obligation for districts to offer in-person, not only offer, but provide for in-person instruction, is how does that legal obligation interact with what is in large swaths of the state required and mandatory distance learning at this point? Yeah, so that was definitely something that we pondered with regards to in-person instruction um, with the mandate or the requirement under SB 98 that it be offered. And what we know today is that there are going to be circumstances like schools opening under a distance learning model 
when they are not needing to do in-person instruction. So the interpretation that we have of SC 98 is if and when it is safe to offer in-person instruction, that the district go ahead and do that to meet the requirements of SB 98. But of course, if you're under a local health order or an order under Governor Newsom, as many districts are today, to offer distance learning and you are prohibited from doing in-person instruction, obviously you're following those orders and that guidance. So can you flush out, Amy, kind of some of the, the elements of distance learning or what's envisioned for distance learning under SB 98? Yeah, so this has been something that we've definitely received a lot of questions, and SB 98 thankfully does include a definition of distance learning, and that definition is that it's instruction in which the student and teacher are in two different locations. However, the, the students are, of course, under the general supervision of the certificated employee. Um, there are a variety of requirements under SB 98 in terms of what distance learning must include. In terms of what LEAs or school districts, charter schools, county offices of education must um, offer to students when they're doing distance learning. Probably the most notable one is what's called daily live interaction between the certificated employee and the peer. As part of that daily live interaction, that is defined as well. And we know that the daily live interaction that should be offered uh, by the LEA uh, should include things like telephonic instruction or instruction that takes um, a different means, such as a Zoom instruction or something like that. And we know that that daily live interaction is supposed to be occurring unless it's clearly not feasible. SB 98 does not go into what not feasible means. So, you know, to the extent that that daily live interaction can occur, it should be offered to students. There are other requirements in terms of what distance learning must include some of those include access to internet connectivity and devices, as well as, of course, challenging course content and those sorts of things. The additional requirements are outlined in our client news brief on distance learning. Yeah, thanks, Amy. And I, and I guess I would throw in there that there's obviously this, the, the foundation for being able to do any of this is the ability and insurance that students have access to internet connectivity and the appropriate te technological devices to receive that instruction. No, I think that that's definitely something that districts, many districts are struggling with right now that weren't previously planning on opening via distance learning. They, you know, none of us knew, and uh, Desiree's going to get into this with uh, the changes under Governor Newsom's most recent order, but, you know, it's definitely something that districts are trying to get up and running, I think, in terms of ensuring that daily live interaction and that connectivity between the, the teachers and students. Now, we've got the SB 98 must, and you're required to do in-person instruction. Then you've got SB 98, discussion of, of distance learning. Um, and I know that, as you said, I want to ask Desiree about the most recent guidance by the governor as of Friday, July 17th, and how that impacts and interacts with these pieces. But under SB 98 itself, can you describe those instances where the legislature, even before Governor Newsom's most recent orders, on distance learning delineated where, where distance learning may be offered even regardless of the in-person instruction requirement? Yeah, so SB 98 prior to Governor Newsom's um, changes outlined two specific scenarios when distance learning may be offered. That is when an LEA, a local educational agency, or um, on a school-wide level, so on a school site level or on a school district level, 
that they need to close as a result of an order or guidance from a state public health officer or a local public health officer. In addition, for students who are medically fragile, who would be put at risk for, by in-person instruction or who are self-quarantining because of exposure to COVID, in those two specific scenarios, SB 98 specifically said that school districts could offer distance learning, again, on a statewide or on a district-wide or on a school site level. And then we know that there was um, a letter that kind of came in follow-up to that from an assembly member and, and another individual. And it essentially said, we weren't trying to limit school districts in terms of offering distance learning. We want to make it flexible for them. Of course, there's a little bit of a question mark there because SB 98 was pretty clear in terms of the two circumstances when it was supposed to be offered. We know now that many districts are, you know, taking into account a lot of data and things like that when they're making those decisions to offer distance learning. So the other thing that I wanted to note is that CDE recently issued um, an FAQ regarding distance learning. And within the FAQ, they have a couple of questions regarding distance learning and whether and when it must be offered. And what's interesting is under their FAQ number nine, they state that distance learning must be offered to students who are medically fragile, um, would otherwise be put at risk by in-person instruction or who are self-quarantining. So that is an interesting distinction between SB 98 where it says you may offer distance learning, CDE's FAQ, which is saying that you must offer distance learning to those students. Um, I think obviously for those that are self-quarantining, that kind of seems like where districts would go, but for those who are quote-unquote medically fragile, CDE's position is that you must offer distance learning. There's also an FAQ 10, which talks about whether or not uh, districts need to have some sort of valid reason or the student needs to have a valid reason and districts need to verify what it means by would be put at risk. CDE's position is that no, schools do not need to confirm that students would be put at risk uh, by in-person instruction. So a little bit of a distinction there between SB 98 and the FAQ issued by CDE. Obviously, consult with legal counsel when you're making those decisions on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis for students. And the last thing that I want to note, not necessarily relevant to your question, Sloan, but there are a lot of districts that when they plan on opening for in-person instruction, if you will, that they're offering this hybrid model between distance learning and in-person instruction. And of course, that's clearly envisioned under SB 98 as well. So Amy, of those two instances that you note, as far as SB 98 permitting uh, explicitly the offering of distance learning, uh, that first one you noted was guidance from the state public health officer and, and the potential of having to offer distance learning on an LEA or school-wide basis. I think that's a good jumping-off point, Desiree, to talk about um, Governor Newsom's guidance uh, by way of the California Department of Public Health and its, its most recent instructions coming around last week. Could you speak to um, Governor Newsom's and the California Department of Public Health's new, new guidance that now interacts with SB 98? Yes, so many school districts were looking at, you know, whether they were going to reopen in person and looking at hybrid models and how they were going to implement um, California Department of Public Health guidelines and recommendations. And then on July 17th, the governor announced new protocols for reopening schools for in-person learning. And the California Department of Public Health that same day issued what they called the COVID-19 and reopening in-person learning framework for K-12 through schools in California. 
And what the governor and California Department of Public Health said is that if the local health jurisdiction has been on the state's monitoring list within the last 14 days, the school must conduct distance learning only until the local health jurisdiction has been off the monitoring list for at least 14 days. So that really changed the directions where now most of the state is looking at opening up and distance learning mode. Um, they did talk about that there would be a waiver option and that a waiver may be granted by the local health officer for elementary schools only, so K through eight, to open for in-person instruction. So they said in that case, it must be the superintendent in consultation with labor, parent, and community organizations that has to request the uh, waiver and that the local health officer must also look at the local community epidemiological data and consider public health interventions and consult with the California Department of Health when considering those waivers. The state superintendent, uh, Mr. Thurman, had a webinar on July 20th in consultation with the California Department of Public Health, and there they mentioned that they would be issuing on a, a process or checklist um, that's supposed to come out this week. So we'll see, you know, what that looks like, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops. And Desiree, what will that anticipated checklist cover? You know, it'll, we'll have to see what it looks like. We've seen that Santa Clara County has given some input to their schools about the opportunity to seek a waiver. And that what they've said is that it's going to, they're going to look at, in addition to the things I just mentioned, look at how the schools have really implemented what the Santa Clara County has put out as far as the things that their school district needs to do. So looking at things like social distancing, face use of face coverings, have we minimized interaction with, with different people? And so really looking through, has the school district really examined and considered and is in a place to implement all of those different safety measures that the state has recommended and in this case, Santa Clara County. So we'll, we'll see how, how that checklist looks once we get, get it. And Desiree, where are we presently in terms of guidance from the state, whether it's the Department of Public Health or the California Department of Ed on addressing uh, the, what folks have referred to as the, you know, the COVID-19 yo-yo, you know, open up, close down, open up, close down, which I think we've all experienced or witnessed otherwise throughout the state and the nation as we juggle this virus uh, spreading and then being flattened and then spreading. Do we have anything on that as it relates to school closures and opening? Yeah, so the July 17th guidance addressed that as well, and they also talked about that in Superintendent's Sermon on web webinar on July 20th, that they said they, the California Department of Health really considered that and understand the difficulties that opening and closing would create if we had that same standard for opening the 14, you know, the on the state monitoring list within the last 14 days. And they really wanted to avoid those, that yo-yo. So there is a different standard once the school is open to in-person learning, um, whether or not they need to do a school closure. And there's two different standards. One is an individual school closure, and the other one is closing the entire school district. So let me start with the individual school closure which they said it's gonna be recommended based on the number of cases um, and the percentage of teachers, students, or staff that are positive for COVID-19. And in following consultation with the local health officer 
And that is really a theme through all their guidance is making sure the school districts are staying connected to their local health officer and collaborating with them based on local health conditions. And they said specifically that it may be appropriate when multiple cases in multiple cohorts at a school or when the number of cases reaches at least 5% of the total number of teachers, students, and staff at that school within the 14-day period. And as they also said, depending on the size and physical layout of the school. So it's going to be really important to work with your local health officer. And they also said, in addition, a local health officer may determine a school closure is warranted for other reasons, including results from a public health investigation um, or a local epidemiological data. And then once that school site is closed, they said that it can typically reopen after 14 days, following making sure that the cleaning and disinfection has occurred, that public health investigation, and the consultation with the local public health department. And then once we talk about closing the whole school district, they said the superintendent should close a school district if 25% or more of schools in the district have closed due to COVID-19 within the last 14 days and in consultation with the local health department. And the standards are the same there for reopening the 14 days. So Desiree, understanding that framework, uh, what do we know in terms of what the state is advising or recommending to avoid having to shut down uh, their schools? Yeah, so during Superintendent Thurman's webinar on July 20th, Dr. Pond from the California Department of Public Health talked about various measures, many of which school districts have already been working on and planning for this whole summer. Uh, and these included things like small cohorts of students that stay together to help minimize exposure and potential cases. She also talked about contact tracing and for purposes of contact tracing, they are considering a close contact. Anyone who is within six feet of the person for 15 minutes or more. So those small cohorts might really help limit exposure and also the use of social distancing of at least six feet, which is already mentioned in the guidance. Um, the use of face covering. So on July 17th, they also updated the face covering guidance for schools, and they said it's strongly encouraged for ages two through second grade, mandatory for grades three and above, unless an exemption applies. Just to be clear, Desiree, that is the July 17th California Depart Department of Public Health new guidelines, correct? Right. And those guidelines are specific in the school and school based program guidance rather than there's a separate face covering guidance, but these ones are specific to schools in the school's guidance. Got it. Yeah, so there's specific exemptions for in the face and the statewide face covering guidance that apply in the school setting as well, which are things like medical conditions, mental health conditions, or disabilities that prevent the wearing of a face covering. The school-specific face covering guidance does say that schools must exclude students from campus if they refuse to wear a face covering and are not exempt from wearing a face covering. Um, and the school should offer an alternative educational opportunity for those students. We have more information on this in our client news brief on FOIA face coverings. Uh, what about, Desiree, what about temperature checks, monitoring staff if there's signs of an infection, uh, if, if we're aware one of our members of the school community has become infected? Yeah, so they're still recommending, and this is part of their prior recommendation too, is 
the use of temperature check protocols every day, checking those temperatures every day with um, a touchless thermometer. And new to their guidance was they also stated that school districts should, in some places the guidance said shall, um, implement COVID-19 surveillance testing protocol for staff. But it said as practical and depending on lab testing capacity because the, the ability to test has been an issue in some areas of the state and the state has indicated they're really working to address that issue. Thanks, Desiree. Amy, coming back around to the instructional side, what, what is our, the current state of the law in this COVID-19 educational setting when we talk about daily instructional day and minute requirements? Yeah, so what we know under SB 98 is that there are minimum um, instructional minutes that either need to occur in person during that in-person instruction or during distance learning or during the hybrid model. SB 98 did take away the annual um, instructional minutes. So there was a total number of instructional minutes every year that school districts had to hit. There are now just daily minimums that need to be offered and either offered through in-person again or through distance learning or through that hybrid. And it varies based on kindergarten, first through third, and then fourth through 12th grade. And I think, you know, in terms of a lot of the questions that we get with these daily instructional minutes is, well, how is that calculated for in-person? Obviously, it's the time spent, you know, in-person um, under the instructional control of the employee of the LEA. And then for distance learning, it is a time value that is assigned to the assignment that the um, employee assigns to that to that document or to that assignment for the student, in addition to any kind of Zoom or um, virtual lessons that they do during the distance learning. Amy, could you also perhaps briefly touch on the notion of monitoring student attendance and absences versus excused absences in this distance learning setting? Yeah, so we are starting to get some questions because SB 98 for when you were on distance learning um, speaks to if a student does not participate daily in distance learning that they shall be marked absent. We are of the opinion that we still have excused and unexcused absences as they're defined under ed code and local board policy and regulation. So if you're on distance learning and a student is ill or has a doctor's appointment, those can be excused absences for distance learning for that day. In terms of taking attendance or ensuring that you can collect the ADA for that day, what we're looking at is a variety of ways to establish that a student, quote unquote, participated in distance learning. SB 98 and our client news briefs do cover these different ways, but a few of them are, of course, participating in the daily instruction or the daily live interaction between the certificated staff member and other students. Uh, it could be completing the work during distance learning that is offered for that day. could be something like a parent or a student emailing with a certificated staff member as well. So there's a variety of ways to, to check the box for participation in distance learning for that day. Thanks, Amy. And thanks, Desiree. Uh, obviously, the three of us could, in reality, talk about these issues for probably three hours this morning or more as we we know that uh, school districts and county offices of ed and other educational agencies are working around the clock to try to grapple with, respond to, and and ultimately educate their kids as we head into 2021 despite uh, this radical change in the educational environment caused by COVID-19. 
these are very uh, helpful guidance, and I completely appreciate your expertise and the time you've taken to, to discuss them. For our listeners, don't miss any of our podcasts if you want to stay updated on COVID-19 or other issues impacting California's educational agencies and other municipalities. You can subscribe to our podcast at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast. And um, again, Desiree, Amy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sloan. Thanks, Sloan. Thanks, everyone. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.